a lot of people look at California and they're just like, dude, I don't want to be in California. I mean, I have people who are based in California investors that they don't want to be in California. But when they finally sort of understand how we're approaching this model, it is a product that we can produce profitably in a new construction environment and not be highly competing for tenants. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. Uh, this is episode 75 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest, Scott, Scott Choppin. Nice to meet you guys. Glad to be here. Joining yeah. us via Zoom from the West Coast, the left coast. There you go. How's the weather there? Uh, you know, uh, we're getting into fall, but you know, that's California version of fall, not you guys and at least Boston is the one location I heard, but uh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're getting a little cooler. We're in that weird time where it's really hot in the day and cooler at night. So yeah, I was, out, I was actually on the West coast last week and yeah, it's, it's funny. Like my, I have family out there. And so my cousins got like all these winter jackets in the mail and I'm like, why do you need these winter jackets? It's like <laughs> 80 degrees out. Like what's going on? <laughs> They're getting They're like, ready it's our for, California blood. <laughs> They're getting ready for 70 degrees. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about urban specific, you know, a little bit of background, obviously, you know, focus on multifamily mm-hmm. development, but, you know, can t- tell us a little bit about background and kind of how you got to where you are now uh, and then kind of what your bread and butter is. Sure. So Scott Choppin, CEO and founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies, we're based in Long Beach, California, which is the south end of LA County, northern Orange County border. I have about a 35 plus year, 36 year career in real estate development. And I'll give a little bit of background on that. So Urban Pacific is a real estate development company that I founded in the year 2000. So uh, we celebrated our 21st year of operations this March. So, you know, gone through everything in that, you know, 21 years, you know, hot markets and down markets and everything in between. Our specialty is urban infill, hence the name Urban Pacific. Since the beginning of the, you know, the founding of the company, we've always focused on urban infill, meaning finding underutilized or vacant sites that are in existing neighborhoods, existing city centers and, and metro areas and really exploiting the opportunity of building housing in in an already existing neighborhood fabric. Fast forward to about five years ago, maybe going on six years ago, we finished a series of apartment buildings. You know, we're we're really an apartment development company if you're going to put a a fine, fine line on it. We saw an opportunity to move into the, what we call the workforce housing space. So we created a product type called Urban Townhouse or UTH for short which is a privately financed workforce housing model that serves multi-generational families. So three-story townhouse rental product. So we're in that build-to-rent model that's now super sexy in the marketplace, although we're an attached version of that. And specifically, we're building a five-bedroom, four-bathroom, three-story townhouse rental unit to serve multi-generational families. So think, you know, Hispanic families with six members in their family, grandparents, adult kids, you know, living together in what we call an economic sharing model. So they're combining rents and incomes to facilitate the, a good, a better life for uh, their families. And, you know, you guys are in in metro areas on the East coast and California, we're the most extreme version of housing unaffordability in in the entire United States. And so this is a solution, you know, a market-based solution to 
you know, that affordable housing issue, which, you know, almost every city across the United States is experiencing that. And then just to complete, my wife and Rebecca and I have been together and married for 28 years. Uh, we have three kids. We have a, a junior in college. Uh, my younger son is a senior in high school. And then my daughter's a freshman in high school. So that's, they, that's I assume they're all going to be in real estate. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a great question. And if you guys have kids of your own, you'll, you'll experience this as yourself. And I actually, my, my dad was in development. You sort of vacillate. You go, oh, this is like a great you know, career or this is like, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> and, and it's, it's usually the, the second one first. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. And then I think you, as you get maybe more seasoned in, in your life, you become, you know, like sort of become, you recognize what it could do for you, right. As a career. And, you know, you guys all have, you know, hands on the development, you know, career it's, it can be, you know, great. And it can be, you know, like very difficult. So, my job as a as a dad to my my oldest son is in the real estate development program at USC here in, in Los Angeles, you know, is to prepare him knowledge, right? Like how to be a developer and how to do it effectively, but also to be a realist, right? Like what does this career really entail? And you know, the risk and risk mitigation and you know, what it what do you do to enhance your capability and probability of success? And that's an ongoing project with him. Can we start with these UTHs? That was really intriguing. Your five bed, four bath. Workforce. I thought that was really interesting. Too. Yeah, workforce. We hear so, a lot of affordable and there's subsidies available. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of workforce, but how do you do it? Yeah, what is it? What the heck is it? And how does the community uh, respond to it as well is my yeah. other question. Yeah. So in my early career, family background in real estate development, recognized when I was 18 that that was going to be my career choice, you know, decided I need to get a college degree, did that, and then graduated and knew I needed to work for other companies for a period of time to get like real formal training. One of the companies I worked for was called Kaufman and Broad Multi-Housing Group uh, that, you know, know them as KB Home. And this is a division that did affordable housing apartment development on behalf of the corporation. So not a retail offer, like sort of skunk works type. And so I had a, this great background in, in apartment development, project management, financing, uh, uh, affordable housing. And so that informed my background. But here's the, the reality of that space is the, you know, got when projects need government subsidy, there's never enough money in the government subsidy programs to facilitate all the people who need the housing, right? Like it's a finite supply of, of subsidy. So when I formed Room Pacific, we did both affordable housing and market rate. And about six years ago, I started to think about, you know, is there a, a space in between those that we could use private capital, but somehow facilitate and, you know, an affordable housing model that wasn't subject to this finite subsidy, you know, sourcing. And so out of that came this UTH model. So the idea is to basically bring private capital from the, you know, normal sources that we're all used to, you know, high net worth family offices, institutional capital sources, and pair it up with this naturally occurring affordable housing model. And and part of the way that we do that is this five-bedroom, four-bath product both serves the tenant base, right, allows them to do this economic sharing, multi-gen lifestyle in these urban infill communities, but produces the economics of the deal in such a way that we can actually produce both a viable project and one that uh, produces 
yield, right? And, you know, there's multifacets to that. It's not just one thing that makes it successful. You know, it's the locations we pick, it's the style of unit, you know, really the, the secret of it is that the whole dollar rents that we produce on these units is probably between, let's say, 3,500 and 4,000 a month. That sounds really high, except you're getting the five bedrooms. It's 1,750 square feet. It's got a two-car garage, right? It's your- sounds cheap to me. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds you, affordable. Yeah, right. It depends on where you're from. I, I, you know, depends, right? If you're from an urbanized area, you go, great, for five bedrooms. What it is, though, is we end up being about 50% of the market rate for a comparable unit, which, by the way, there are no five-bedroom comparable units. So we break it down on a per-bedroom comparison basis. So you take a two-bedroom brand-new unit that's, you know, 3000 a month or 2500 and you go, per-bedroom, it's 1250 well, we're delivering units right now at $740 per bedroom as the, the latest metric on our most recent project. So because of this combined economic sharing in this big unit, whole dollar rents, that basically is what makes the economic structure work. What do you build one of these townhouses for? So right now, we're, we uh, last year before or during the beginning of coronavirus, we're at about a buck $135 a square foot net lease. <laughs> And this is all in vertical, horizontal, you know, everything all in last project we bid was about 165 bucks and that's, you know, cost inflation, you know, lumber, which, you know, you guys are probably dealing with that. Although uh, fortunately lumber's come way back down. We had uh, great success in leasing the units in the pandemic. And then a lot of labor became available as projects shut down that accelerated, but then now we're into this, you know, cost inflation, you know, arena area. And, you know, everybody's dealing with that, I think, across the United States. Assuming you also need to get some density as well to make some of these numbers work, correct? Yeah. So one of the facets that, you know, I said there's several facets. So this density, we build at about 22 to the acre. You know, if you think about it, it's 2,000 square feet of land per unit. That's what we need. And that includes the driveways and setbacks and walkways and, and the footprint of the unit. But the key is it's this three-story that's the real like key to this. So the way I put it is like, a, if you put a graph, it's the, it's the meeting point between, you know, lowest cost, maximum density, producing the, the highest revenue possible relative to that cost, right? You know, as developers, we live in that dollar of income produced based on, you know, whatever we cost us to deliver that, or, you know, your NOI to cost, you know, revenue based on your investment. And so three stories is really a sweet spot for us because if you think about it, if you go any higher, if we went four or five or six stories, you could get more density, probably more overall rent, but it costs you a lot more to build that building because it's a more complex construction methodology, maybe even into a podium or, you know, sort of mid-rise. If you go down, right, like you do a two-story house or detached, at least in California, you know, it's much cheaper to build, but you're not producing the revenue sufficient you know, you're like your lower revenue overall production. So in our world, three stories is that sweet spot. Um, How wide are these townhouses? I'm asking so, friend. Great question. So we really, on the ground floor, we build it around the garage. So all of our units have a two-car side-by-side direct access uh, private garage, right? So like your house, right? Like your standard car garage, yeah. which is 20 feet wide, right? 20 mm -hmm. by 20 is sort of the space you need to park in. So we end up doing about 21 to 22 feet wide, you know, in the width. 
And that's to get that 20 by 20 plus some space on the side. And then we carry that forward. And then on the other dimension, it's 35 feet deep, which allows us to fit on the ground floor, our entry foyer, a hallway, and then one of the five bedroom and four bathrooms is on the ground floor. And that's to accommodate the multi-gen component of it. So if you had an in-law or grandparent that was older and had mobility issues, we always put this ground floor bedroom bathroom. In fact, that's standard in all of our projects, which by the way, we pretty much build everything is this five bedroom unit type, you know, the UTH unit type. Although we're experimenting right now with a a three-story two bedroom unit, just to sort of juice the density a little bit, right? If we had, you know, five and a half units or 50 and a half units that we could fit on a site, like we're trying to fill in that half space of density uh, or half a unit of density. We're also experimenting with some ADU, basically building ADUs in the garage of uh, one project where we do the two bedrooms, we're going to do an ADU in that garage in neighborhoods that are, you know, parking appropriate for that. Now, are you focusing mainly in like LA County or are there specific target markets that you're building in? Yeah, definitely. So LA and Orange County, when we started this program, you know, no one's doing five bedroom, four bathroom product, right? In the rental markets, it just doesn't exist. And so in, in our early, you know, in that beginning of that five-year period, we said, let's take on a series of projects that are small and mid-sized projects really close to home so that we can control the experiment very closely. It won't be high cost to, you know, travel to the Bay Area or San Diego. And, you know, it's in our backyard, which, you know, is appropriate. You guys are developers, you know what that's like, but we have managed projects, you know, far away too. But this, in this case, we go, let's keep costs down. Let's keep it really close to home markets. We know really well. So actually even in our, my hometown of Long Beach was really where the first UTH projects were developed. In fact, uh, three out of the first four were like right in our backyard. But the key, and this, and this is how I'll answer the question, you know, as a follow-on, we're really an A product in B and C neighborhoods. So we're an A product and then it's brand new. It's got, you know, quartz countertops and, you know, vinyl plank flooring, you know, so you go in there and, and the units look, you know, comparable to a, a, you know, a market rate, you know, competitor, but we're locating in what I call blue collar working class neighborhoods. So in LA, this would be not downtown LA or downtown Long Beach or like the central business district, but it'd be two or three or four neighborhoods over from that, right? What I call the urbanized suburb. So it's used to be suburban in the old days, but because it's an older neighborhood, it's sort of become a little bit more urbanized, maybe a little bit more density, a little bit more commercial, maybe some industrial sort of sprinkled all in, but it's got pockets of these suburban neighborhoods. That's really where we want to be because you know, this is where those tenants live, right? They don't live in the high rise in downtown LA. It's, you know, it's not appropriate for their family, kids in school, like that kind of thing. But also the units aren't appropriate, right? A studio in the high rise in downtown LA, it's super sexy, great views, but your family of six is not living in that unit, right? So these are commutable neighborhoods, but also what we find are, and to finish is our, our tenants, these are generally where they're already living. We have a project in the city called Montebello, probably half of the tenants in that project were Montebello natives. Like literally I am from here. I've always lived here, but here's a unit now that appeals to my family. So we could come together, uh, what we call recombining. So they could bring disparate parts of their family together. A grandparent moves in with them. Now they can all live in under one rooftop. It's the complete antithesis to the whole gentrification, pushing people out. So that's pretty cool. I was going to ask, 
So what's the, ter- the, what's the overall process? Like you find a piece of land, it looks like a good fit. Can you just kind of walk us through real high level, like how it gets approved yeah. and get shovel ready? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the development process, you guys know, you know, find the land, uh, get the approvals from the government. If we need them entitlements, you know, design the project with the architect or, you know, the entitlements and the design sort of go together, get approvals, get permits, you know, cost it out, build it, rent it, and then either sell it if that's appropriate or or hold it. Although I will offer all of our projects now are long-term hold structures. So we are both firm believers in this, 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 this market space, right? Like serving families. And this is like a, you know, we're in California, man. This is the most undersupplied market, you know, supply constrained market in the in the United States. Huge demand for this space, but also just the ethic around serving families is really great. And then, and you know, I went through the 2008 recession. I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to sell a project because my investors want to get out. Like I want long-term, you know, hold structures where I go, look, I know over a five or a 10-year or longer time period asset values in California because of that supply constraint. I mean, they're not going to go up forever. I'm not like saying that, but on a probabilistic basis and what we've observed over the last 20 or 30 years, like asset values in California because of supply constraint are likely to go up more more so than they would go down. And if you do go down, it will be for just a limited time period. Like 2008 sort of flattened out in the multifamily development marketplace, but then we saw a huge influx of renters coming out of foreclosures. And then the same during the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we saw a lot of people that were like deciding, hey, look, I'm not going to live in separate units from either my family or, you know, combining together in roommate situations. In both cases, you know, multi-generational, multi-bedroom product became, you know, accelerated in those recessionary environments. So, yeah, I was going to I was going to bring that up It's because it's a very interesting model, you know, because we actually saw here in, in Boston, we saw, you know, larger units. They were got. They became much harder to rent during the pandemic because if you have a four bedroom unit, you know the roommate situation. People don't want to live with other people if one person's going on partying and all this and so on and so forth. So, your the concept that you you have over there is interesting because it's a family and they all want to live together and they can all help support the rent. I'm assuming a lot of you know the reason why you're also going into some of these neighborhoods is the acquisition prices are probably more reasonable than yeah, that like, right. probably doesn't pencil out in a, in a, a, and sometimes a B neighborhood. Yeah. In fact, I tell the brokers, I go, don't send me any to any sexy neighborhoods. Like I, I don't <laughs> want any, <laughs> and I, you know, they, they allow, they get a kick out of that. I go, but it really, it's, it's blue collar and I'm not talking war zone, but we'll, we'll be really aggressive in the types of neighborhoods that we go to. So exactly right. The competition is low. If, if, if not none, particularly in, in Southern California, most of the people who we would compete with would actually be a three-story condo builder model for sale, right? And there's like a limit of to where they'll go. Like if the neighborhood's too blue collar, too working class, too low income, they won't go there because they know that for sale buyers, you know, want the higher and, you know, aspirational, they want to move up, not move down. So we're getting better land pricing, uh, we're getting better cooperation from the cities on entitlements. Um, we, we always try to... My next question. Yeah, we always yeah, try I to, wanted to expand on that. I wanted to expand on that in terms yeah. of the entitlement process. Like, mm-hmm. 
what are the specific steps? Do you have to meet with everybody? Like out here, we have to have a 300 foot of butters meeting, mm-hmm. there's civic groups, all that sort of stuff. Is it similar yeah. out there? It, it depends. It's, it's probably the same for you guys. Like if you had a buy right site, right? If you bought a site that already had the zoning, then you don't have to do any of those. Well, that, that doesn't exist. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, with you. I'm with you. Like wishful thinking, man, we'd love that. Yes. Yeah, so, so in California, I mean, I would say, for you guys, you know, if I think of East Coast cities, you know, Boston, New York, you know, any of the major cities that have like these, you know, huge neighborhood, you know, big city councils and, you know, lots of neighborhood groups, you're going to have the experience of what we would typically have if we had to rezone what, you know, a general plan amendment rezone would be the typical big entitlement actions that you would take. But in that case, we do exactly what we described 300 foot radius map. We're required to notify legally, but we'll try to get ahead of that, right? So meet with the neighbors first, get them to, you know, like sort of flush out their concerns, be mad, be upset, and let them vent in order for them to, and and if they have good ideas, you know, we try to implement them into the project and we have to do it within reason. But I always find it much better if you do have a controversial neighborhood entitlement process that you would do that. But to be real honest with you guys, We don't really have that very much because these neighborhoods, these B and C neighborhoods, more often, but when we do have that, people are like, great, man, you're gonna, you're gonna build on that empty lot. Like that thing has been a pain in my ass forever because people keep, you know, parking dead cars and you know, leaving couches and you know, attractive nuisance type stuff. So more often than not, we'll have neighbors, you know, that are renters predominantly, but they'll come out and they'll go, This is great. In fact, you know, where can I sign up? Like this is, you know, these are brand new units. I, I didn't know, I didn't know people would build new units in this neighborhood. That's a, that's a narrative we hear often. That's awesome. I don't know if I heard you properly. Uh, you said they, they rezone as part of that process. So are they rezoning it or are you getting like a variance or, you know, it, you know, I, I think it's probably the same for you guys. Every site has its own, you know, mix of the requirements to do it. So I was giving you the most extreme example and under California planning law, so, you know, we have like a high level planning document called the general plan, which sort of just gives high level guidance to, you know, land uses. And then the zone underneath that, which needs to comply with the land use element, then gives you the specifics of what goes on that site. Right. Very, you know, very. But they're not rezoning specific to your project is what I was getting. At. Uh, you know, in all cases, generally, yes, they would. Oh, interesting. But sometimes we can't rezone. Right. Like you know, one, you know, spot zoning, you guys have heard of that. You know, we couldn't go into the middle of a single family neighborhood and rezone it to R3, (laughs) right? Put three stories. I have like regularly training with my team, particularly guys that have land acquisition responsibilities to be like, sort of look at it holistically, like look at a neighborhood and go, dude, you can't go in the middle of a a single family neighborhood. You're going to get killed. The neighbors are going to fight. And so we'll just go, no, you know, so we're pretty pretty brutal on assessing sites. If there's any like whiff of controversy, we'll just move on. And yeah, and you know, sites are hard to find. I mean, by right sites are particularly hard to find. They are available. But this is to your point, the strategy of going in these BNC neighborhoods, people really are much more favorable to what we're doing because we're improving some negative situation versus, you know, going to the high-end neighborhood. And the empty lot, you know, the classic, you know, claim from there was, oh, the city told us that would be a park. You know, every site was going to be a park, man, I swear. And, you know, <laughs> true or not, like they, people think that. And, you know, I've been involved in enough, you know, controversial entitlement 
you know, like real fights. Like I've not, not on, not on my company or in Pacific, but when I worked for Kaufman Abroad, I mean, we had literal sites that we got approvals from like the, you know, County Board of Supervisors. And then the neighborhood sued the county and sued us, the developer. And, you know, we went to actually been to trial over land use lawsuits. And in that case, we won. We we're very fortunate to win, but it's so squirrely. You just don't know. I mean, it just happened to be we got a judge who could see it sen- sensibly. But the reality is you never know. Right. And and particularly the political structure. I mean, politicians are, you know, pretty uh pretty willy-nilly if they have people showing up pissed off constituents showing up at their city council meetings you usually will lose there first before you ever go to trial although i will offer this in california the state law is becoming more and more stringent to resist cities making those tax structure in california under prop 13 really hurts housing and and incentivizes commercial or retail that produces sales tax revenue Cities would always get that. Oh, I want, you know, I want retail. I don't want housing. That housing costs me money. Retail makes me money, right? On a property tax basis, fiscalization of land use is that that's what that's called. But the states really become much more aggressive in enforcing. Look, you just can't deny housing because you just don't want it, right? Like you got to have good logic. It's got to have a health and safety damage potential, right? Like, you know, to 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 resist housing. And in fact, the city state of California is suing cities that make these arbitrary decisions. They're actually the states suing the cities directly when they make these kind of, you know, uh, decisions. Interesting. You know, if we built that product type in Boston, I think it would fill with young professionals really quickly. Yeah. And it's almost yeah. similar to co-living. Yeah. We, you know, we've looked at other markets. So, you know, this works very much in, in SoCal, but even in SoCal, there's, we need to really stay centered in LA and Orange County, like metro area. When you go to peripheral places, the rents drop off, you know, aggressively enough where it doesn't make sense. Uh, and we do get, you know, young professional roommates. Like, you know, we're we're sent we're centered around serving families, but of course, mm-hmm. you know, we're a market-based offer. It's up to us mm-hmm. as to who we rent to. So during the coronavirus, you know, sort of opposite of um, you know, what you guys were talking about, uh, we actually saw an acceleration in roommate groups that were what I call location agnostic professional renters. So, you know, it might be. You know, one of the things I saw is, you know, people that were roommates in college, you know, they loved living with the roommates, their companies released them from working geographically. And so what they did is they came together and they go, okay, like, I love living with you guys. I need a roommate. I want a bigger unit. Hey, let's move to Newport Beach and we'll, you know, be there for two years. And, you know, nobody cares like where they work geographically. I don't think that's a forever trend. I think, you know, that's a definitely during the coronavirus, but we did see an acceleration in that. So yeah, every market will be different. We've looked at, you know, Portland, Seattle, Denver. We think there's a story for our UTH model and all those. But again, we're, you know, each has its different market characteristic. You know, we looked at, you know, Dallas. There's actually a lot of three-story townhouses being developed in Houston, Dallas, and Austin, but they're all for sale. And so I said, would there be a story for this townhouse rental? And what we came back with from our research was not for middle-income families. They can drive 20 minutes outside of Dallas and get, you know, a house on a lot for the same price as they would in town, right? But what we did get is, oh, younger professionals don't want to buy, maybe they're for a year or two for their job. You know, they want to hang out with their their friends. Love it. So exactly, you know, what you're talking about. That, that was sort of feedback. We haven't done any deals there, but that's the, you know, what our research indicated as well. 
two follow-up questions. Do you have a minimum number of units that you want to go into a project with? And then second, maybe talk a little bit about the financing aspect of it, kind of the capital stack, how you come across. Are you raising money? Are you you know, financing the entire project with private money or are you, you know, do you have a, you know, a number of lenders that you typically go to? And then is there a finance, a refinance uh, aspect uh, uh, kind of down the line once the project is built and stabilized? Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. No, those are all great questions. So in the beginning of this program, we stayed small on purpose because it's such an experimental model. We just didn't know how it works. So we actually did a four-project demonstration phase, all really small. In fact, some of the, literally the smallest projects I'd ever done. But as we exited that demonstration phase and started to move into the production phase, really our range is anywhere from 20 to, let's say, 100 units would be the size of project that we prefer um, we'll look at, you know, smaller if well located and bigger if if appropriate. And then that basically that like demonstration phase to production phase informed our capital model, right? So in the beginning, when we were doing smaller projects, institutions wouldn't look at small projects. They were too small, you know, not worthwhile for them to to underwrite invest in. So we raised a lot of, you know, high net worth, small family office capital was really the main go-to source for those early projects. And then as we as we moved in, now we're probably two, two and a half, three years into the production phase. Then that basically puts us in front of institutional capital sources. But on a bigger picture basis, we're actually in the process. We've formed uh, what's called the Urban Pacific Workforce Housing Fund One, which will be a sixty million dollar equity fund uh, with leverage, probably one hundred eighty to two hundred million, you know, total uh, AUM specifically to raise capital to facilitate an entire portfolio of these UTH projects. Like that's all we'll do. LA, Orange County, geographic focus, the project size that I described. And then it would be basically not a blind pool because we've actually got an entirely identified pipeline of both controlled projects, meaning under contract in the autonomous process, and then identified probably another 20 land sites throughout SoCal. And that's just because basically, again, we're such firm believers in this space that it really makes sense to produce a, a pool of capital that we manage to facilitate this. And then we're already in talks of, you know, funds two, three, four, and beyond just for the purpose of like, we've identified these major urban metro areas throughout SoCal, you know, San Diego is an opportunity, Bear is in the opportunity, and then, you know, Western metro areas, I think are all candidates for this. And then to finish, you know, we're, we're underwriting projects basically at a very vanilla structure for, for debt and equity. So we really travel along the 75-25. So 75% leverage, 25% equity. So you guys, you know, it's like very like middle of the road, nothing special. And we did that on purpose because the product's very specialized, unique, uncommon, differentiated. But we knew that in the beginning when we're like talking with lenders and equity investors, we didn't want to do anything that was really wildly anomalous on any, like how we build it, how we finance it, you know, how we identify the site. So we really tried to make it very vanilla. So we have a, a cadre of lenders that work with us on the construction. We have a, a big network of construction lenders, but a lot of them were uh, after they, they, when we talked about five and four bath, they just good folks, but they just didn't get it. They're like, wow, that's cool. But man, that's sort of crazy too. But we have, you know, several lenders that, you know, really get it. And, you know, we've proven the model through this, you know, demonstration phase. 
And then on the when we finish the projects back to this long-term hold structure, we'll just again use very straightforward perm debt. So, you know, very typical, let's see, some recent, you know, we had a site we ended up selling, but we were looking at a F- Freddie Mac structure uh, for the perm loan. I think it was going to be like 70 to 75% LTV, be real straightforward, nothing, nothing special, commercial banks. So the perm debt is very, very vanilla again on purpose. And of course, we want to make the best deal, both on terms and, and underwriting, LTV, that kind of thing. But, you know, pretty straightforward stuff. For the the debt part is easy. It's standard rate in terms. The equity part, is it like a GPLP structure? And then are you able to talk about what some of those splits might be or might look like? Or <laughs> yeah, all general well, returns? So, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, very, again, very typical, you know, 90-10, 95-5, depending on the deal, depending on the investor. So I have like a whole group of investors that I've worked with over my career that, you know, know us. And, you know, when we pitch them on it, you know, we, we can obviously sort of negotiate terms. And so each deal ended up being, you know, sort of some variation on a theme of that. I won't go into specifics on the fund just because we're in our capital raising period. So I want to be cautious there, but it, it'll be relatively similar. You know, what I will share with you is on the completed and sold projects, we're ending up at a, about a 23, it's 23.06. IRR to LP capital in that first series of projects. And part of the reason for the experimentation was both to actually, you know, develop the projects, learn how to build them. You know, we know how to build, but of course, you know, we want to be production oriented and be efficient about it, but also it's to prove the value, right? Can this, can these things make money, right? Do they really make money? What can we rent them for? What's the, how do the appraisers and the lenders look at them on a, on a long-term, you know, permanent basis, permanent loan basis, you know, in the appraisal process. So the, you know, the demonstration phase proved that out. In fact, that 23 was on that demonstration phase. You know, I think we're, we're definitely, you know, market, market superior, uh, but particularly what we talk about is just supply constraint, right? Like, you know, a lot of people look at California and they're just like, dude, I don't want to be in California. I mean, I have people who are based in California investors that they don't want to be in California, but when they, I, when they finally sort of understand how we're approaching this model it is a product that we can produce profitably in a new construction environment and not be highly competing for tenants. And, and this is all on purpose. Like when I five, six years ago, when we were looking for a product diversification model, we were really intentional about not doing what everybody else was doing, which then and today was to build, you know, mid-rise podium, you know, sort of three, four, five story stick built over parking structure you know, studio one bedroom product, right? Great, you know, well-suited product for the demographic trends, you know, millennial, Gen Z, you know, living alone, living in the urban environment. But to me, what I lesson I, I drew from the 2008 arena is don't be where everybody else is because when the market turns, which it eventually will, at some point, fundamentally, you don't, you know, bypass the economic cycle, the, you know, there's going to be a lot of product on the market and then somebody's going to suffer. Somebody's going to have to reduce rents, you know. And so my logic was, you know, Trammell Crow's got a much better cost of capital than I do. And they can hold out a lot longer than I can. So I would be the one forced to reduce rents first to try to fill up my units. And I just don't even want to be in that space. So we went, you know, everybody's going that way. We went that way on purpose. And that turned out to be, you know, the right choice. And, you know, we didn't know coronavirus would be what the, you know, and if that is really the recession, you know, 
dude, we're in such an artificially inflated, constrained economic cycle right now. I don't know if we have the recession or one's coming. I mean, it's pretty crazy, but really all the lessons we learned for how we track this, what I call the signal from the noise, which is a, you know, it's a well-identified term, but I really have spent and do spend a lot of time tracking different economic variables, listening to certain, you know, people who talk about housing economics and the, and the economic cycle, looking for longer-term demographic trends, and then making decisions on the product type that we build and the markets that we serve to increase the probability of both recession resilience, right? Like if a recession comes, can we can we live and not die or a project live and not die? And then could we be neutral or accelerate in that recession? And then just, you know, long-term, you know, value generation. And that's, you know, that's why this product exists for us is because it's the only thing that we've ever done that is so highly differentiated and has these sort of like economic, you know, anti-cycle, you know, mechanisms in them. And it's no guarantee. I mean, I'm not sitting here going, gosh, we're bulletproof. We're not. But, you know, we were making decisions on, okay, let's not ever be in a forced sale in the middle of a recession. Let's never do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, sense. and then we were limited even in 2008. We didn't have a lot of that, but man, it was like, you know, everybody was under pressure. I mean, anybody who went through that experienced the same thing. We just said, let's, let's not be there again. Let's and the interesting thing about housing recessions is that they're not necessarily nationwide, right? They can mm-hmm. be local to certain markets, sub-markets, yeah. and you could have total disconnect. Like we, I, I feel like we're seeing that right now where there could be an economic recession. And I'm sure a lot of people are going through that economic recession, whether it's forced work from home or change of jobs or their employer closed up. Other places are just going crazy. Like I remember when yeah. the rates got cut real quick, I was a refi. I had somebody that one of my tenants was a food service person and they were shut down. So they just became a loan underwriter for some company mm-hmm. and uh, that changed. But yeah, which was blowing up, right? Yeah, like, it's like so. They were, so they it's so spotted. It, it's all yeah. over the place. I'll kind of play devil's advocate a little bit. Do you worry uh, your type of product? You know, you're catering to a kind of you said the blue collar worker, right? right? At least in Boston during the pandemic, that was the demographic that got hit the most because yeah. service industry shut down, the hospitality industry shut down, a lot of these folks lost their jobs, so you know, in an economic downturn, do you worry that those are kind of going to be the first to get hit? Yeah. In fact, they were, I mean, you know, uh, you know, 2020, you know, showed us that now we anticipated, like we saw again from 2008, sort of like bringing those lessons forward. You know, we knew there would be some impact. Of course, we don't know what it will be, but you try to look at big picture trends and go, okay, where can, where do we think it will go? probabilistically, where's the likelihood that this will happen or that will happen. And, you know, uh, service economy was decimated, right, in, in the 2020. But here's the interesting thing about one of the things that we anticipated, both from proof of things that happened in the 08 recession, and then, you know, sort of drawing that lesson forward was that in the 2008, 2009 recession, Pew Research did a study, and they looked at families that join together, like, so it's the opposite. You know, we have household formation where somebody moves out, forms their own, you know, kid moves away and they're a new household from the family core, right? Well, there's the opposite, which I call recombination, which is people moving back in together. And that was really the strat, that's one of the key strategies to like, at least the way we approached it was in a recessionary environment, people will become defensive, right? They'll start to 
save costs. They'll start to join together and roommates and, 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 you know, coronavirus affected that in some alternative ways, like you described before. But, you know, 2008 said there was, and I can't remember the exact percentages, but there's a, a big percentage of families that, that came back together to live in a economic sharing lifestyle that was enhanced from the effect of the 2008-2009 recession. We said in the next recession, we could see that probabilistically happening also, right? In fact, that's one of the reasons. And the key to that really is this multi, what I call multi-earner household. So we talked multi-gen. But one of the things about multi-gen families is they have multiple earners. And that's the real key is because if you have four income earners in the household and one person becomes unemployed or underemployed, then the rest of the family in those income earners can pick up the slack. Economic sharing, the way I deem it, is families that share incomes and expenses across the larger family group, right? They share. In fact, the rates of poverty in multi-gen families are much lower because of this economic sharing, multi-earner lifestyle. It's really not mainstream. I mean, you know, you guys you know, may know about it, but really when I talk to investors, you know, they're like, okay, I sort of get it, but you know, how do you bring two separate families together? I go, no, no, you don't understand. These families already exist. Maybe they're living in two units side by side. Maybe they're, you know, one family, part of the family lives down the block and, you know, another, you know, grandparent and, you know, adult child live over here. But the, the reality from a cultural and, and ec- economic standpoint, they already exist this way. All we're doing is giving them a unit to practice this economic sharing, multi-gen, multi-earner lifestyle under a single rooftop. Yeah, the closest I'd say is like out here in Boston, you have a triple decker. And that was always the story. The family would live in the three different stories, but that's three separate units and yeah. similar to a townhouse, but obviously yeah. not one. Yeah. I think stories. historically multi-gen living in the United States was, it was the norm. And then globally it is the norm. Uh, America, you know, United States in the, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies with the nuclear family was an anomaly like that. The capability of a family to have one earner to afford a house and mom could stay at home or however they decided to live, you know, two parents, 2.5 kids, you know, dog and two cars in the driveway. Well, that was really functionally the post-World War II era, you know, post-Bretton Woods. The United States was on the top of the economic pile. I mean, you know, all countries were moving to the U.S. dollar. We still had manufacturing. You know, we were exporting overseas. People were using the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. We were in the heyday of allowing the economic forces or, or enabling, rather, maybe is a better way to say it, for a single earner household to actually produce income sufficient to take care of their life, right? But, you know, historically and today, that's reversing, right? Like, you know, dollars being inflated, you know, we've moved all of our manufacturing offshore, we've sort of, you know, gutted our manufacturing economy, and, you know, the wages reflect that. In fact, I have a graph that shows, you know, housing costs doing this and wages doing this, right? Housing costs are going up and wages are flat. And, you know, we could argue today it's going up slightly with the increased inflation, but on a, on a, on a long-term basis, incomes are flat. Where, where we serve is the gap, right? In between the housing costs and the incomes that are really produced back here, right? At this one, you know, in the 50s, so you could afford the house. Now, incomes haven't sustained the growth rate that housing costs have. And so we basically are serving an economic gap in the marketplace that, you know, really isn't, hasn't been served before. The multi-generational living is similar to, you know, I have a couple of rental properties and they're all filled with young professionals, but 
just the notion of joint and several is, is a magic term, right? Yeah. If one of them loses their job, I have three professionals who are accountable. That's right. That's right. In fact, I, I describe uh, UTH as a uh, economic sharing. Co-living is a, is a yeah. version of economic sharing. You know, roommates, as we know, classically, you know, in college, we shared housing costs. That's economic sharing. Our UTH is. And there'll be more, right, that, that are doing that. But you're right. I mean, we, we, we require that all the income earners, those multiple earners, sign the lease. The other thing I'll share with you guys, and particularly amongst Hispanic families, the rates of entrepreneurship in these families is much, much higher than what we see in the in the normal, you know, demographics of just, you know, whoever you would rent to. So we have families that really are combined, you know, W-2 wage earners plus, you know, one of the family members is an entrepreneur. I mean, we have, you know, one family that moved in, it was the mom and two daughters. The two daughters, you know, worked regular, you know, a barista at Starbucks or like a service job, a retail job. But mom is, you know, I don't remember what her business was, but she's, you know, making a very healthy income. And they said, oh, this is perfect. This unit allows us. In fact, what they did is they rented the unit together, three people, and then the extra two bedrooms became their work from home space. Now, we don't encourage or discourage that, right? So, you know, it's not up to us to dictate that, oh, got to fill up all the bedrooms. But it's interesting to watch the economics meet the housing type and sort of how those start to mesh together in new ways. That's cool. There's also an interesting story about health outcomes with multi-generational living. They say that first-generation immigrants live longer than second-generation immigrants. And they attribute it, I guess, to uh, multi-generational living mm-hmm. and I also eating more healthy. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, it's funny because some of the- less money, so it's counterintuitive. Well, I'll share with you a funny story because we, we always we said, hey, we got this ground floor bedroom bathroom for you know the grandparents, you know, for grandma. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were like, no, no, dude, they're not going to live on the ground floor. They're going to live on the middle floor mm-hmm. where the kitchen is, right? And it's, you know, it's very clat, you know, but literally they're like, you know, their grandmother will be home mm-hmm. and she's cooking for the whole family. Um, the other thing, interesting thing that we saw is that in these families, you know, the idea of latchkey kids doesn't exist because there's always somebody home when kids get home from school, whether it be adult child or sibling, you know, one of the parents works shift work, you know, grandparent is there. We have like zero of that, you know, in reality of kids coming home to an empty house. Uh, One other quick question I wanted to get in was uh, around managing the properties. So you've built them, developed them, you're keeping them. Are you self-performing all the management and have a division there or are you outsourcing that? Yeah. So the story there is in the early, you know, in this demonstration phase period, we didn't have confidence that we could find a third-party property manager that like we were trusted and thought was fully capable. Now, you, you know, people could make the argument, well, neither did you, except that we had been living with the idea of these, you know, renting to these families for, you know, in some cases, you know, two to three years, depending on the cycle of the project to, you know, stabilize occupancy. So what we did in that demonstration phase is we actually brought a team member on board um, to who basically had a property management background and said, okay, you're going to be the go-to dedicated person on our team to, to create all the practices around that. So, you know, new leasing conversations, like how do you lease to these families? Like they're different. You don't market to them. You know, they're not going to apartments.com necessarily to find apartments to rent. So we had to come up with different, you know, channels of how to reach out to them. You know, the sales conversation and leasing we had Spanish speaker, right? Absolutely, right? So that 
So along each of these steps, we knew we would have to create new ways to do it because that was such a new product type. So on the early, uh, really every project that we've that we've built, either sold or hold now, is under this this structure that I just described, where we have an internal team. So the the quick answer is we we self manage everything so far. But I am in a story that as we get into bigger projects, particularly with the fund, you know, we'll be bringing on third-party property managers. And then that person who has been managing them so far will partially move into an asset management role. And then actually, uh, when we complete the fundraise, you will actually hire a full-time asset manager, you know, senior level type person to manage the portfolio. But the key is as we did in everything, like we want, we knew that these things would be an experiment. And so rather than trying to throw somebody in into it and maybe they fail, maybe they don't like an external third party, we go, let's handle in-house. We can learn all those lessons. And by the time that third party property manager comes on board, we go, oh, dude, we got all the lessons, how to lease, how to, how to market, you know, how to manage, right? Managing five bedroom units is a, is a thing, right? Yep. Property manager um, training the property manager. Nice. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and with real data, real proof of concept, you know, one of the things that we figured out, like the trash production in these units is like giant, right? Like a lot of people produce a lot of trash. We have four um, kids in our house and I can't explain how yeah, the trash dude, it's crazy. It's, and, and, you know, not surprising, you know, we sort of knew that, but, you know, a couple of projects were like, wow, we're, re- we're really learning this, right? Truly. The guy who's our lead, Eric Christopher on property management, you know, he he his narrative is like it's just a lot of people, right? A lot of density of persons on a site when you have five bedrooms and and you know a lot of units in a given project. In fact, I'm in a story of projects that are over 100 units. I'm really I'm really in the narrative of like we need to treat those differently because we're going to have so many people in a density you know situation on a project. These need to be treated specially. And I don't have what the answer is to that because we haven't, our, our biggest project date is 85 units in development now. But, you know, we start to think about more, you know, amenities, more open space or whatever would be practically useful to, you know, give an outlet to that. Uh, like the project 85 units, we ended up donating an acre of parkland to the city right next adjacent to the project. And then we'll have, you know, gating from the project into the park as the amenity. I mean, that was part of our development agreement with the city, but, you know, start to really think about those kind of things. Like, you know, we're going to have to do something different here because we'll have so many people on a given site. That's great. I mean, I know we're coming up on time, so, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time. This has been definitely helpful to understand different market than ours that we're typical, typically uh, looking at and kind of maybe, you know, the future, potential future of development in the East coast can kind of maybe mm-hmm. learn, take some. Yeah. I think this working class housing and just, you know, serving the working class generally is, is, you know, it's like an ascendant market category, right? Like well, Mark, Mark said it before. I mean, everyone's talking affordable housing, right. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's only, there's only so much subsidy that can go around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Cities are just quickly well, becoming a place for the ultra rich and the very poor. Yeah, and right. Middle squeezed out. So it's, yeah, and, it's, and 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 you know, and those middle are going somewhere. You know, they're moving mm-hmm. from California to Texas. You know, that's like statistically, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the top you know relocation marketplace. So you know, in fact, that's one of the weak points in our story. Is like you know, do we lose our middle class in such a vast manner that our product doesn't become, you know, it's not viable anymore? 
Uh, yeah. You know, we're so supply constrained, though, guys. I mean, I don't overly worry about that. Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies did a study about SoCal, like, you know, what, how far behind are we on production? And they came up with a, a 1 million unit shortfall. Jeez. Like, we're a million units yeah. behind in production. And that was like three years ago, by the way. And so I'm like, I go, I look at that, I go, I mean, you know, some portion of those are middle income that we would serve. And I just like, I'm in the story of, I think there's like decades to catch up of that. And in our regulatory environment, like our laws and, and anti-development mentality at cities, I don't know that we'll ever catch up. You know, I, I don't like sit around going, oh, we're bulletproof over that. Like we got to really continue to monitor the market and be careful about that. But that's one of the things I think about. But I think that story is applicable to probably every major urban metro across the United States. And, and to really, you have the, that workforce is there. Boston has this middle market, they just go somewhere out of the areas where the wealth is that they probably work there or they, you know, they work in the retail or they, you know, <laughs> however they work in the service economy, they go somewhere in, at night. And I don't mean to be like cute about it. I mean, they really go, I, I work here and I live over there. And so it's the sort of identifying where's the over there where they do live. But it's a big problem because there's a labor shortage and this this is certainly not helping. There's restaurants yeah. now that yeah, are just closing an extra day a week because they just don't have staff. Can't find the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. So I think, you know, with, this is a very long-term trend, multi-generational, the need for economic sharing, you know, people under pressure for, you know, for the wages that they earn relative to, you know, where they have to live. So that's part of my, you know, you know, confidence to the probability of success is just looking at these really long-term trends. You know, we're not going to land a million units in Southern California tomorrow. It ain't going to happen. And so I go, if we're continue to be supply constrained at some level, then I can have some, you know, confidence in the probability that supply constraint will continue. Like that's one of the logics that I use and sort of having some confidence in the future. But, you know, black swans are black swans, guys, right? As we know from 2020. Sure. Well, thank you, Scott. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here. Um, If if anyone wants to uh, reach out, find some more information about yourself and your your company, uh, how can they do that? So I would encourage people, go to our website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. Check for a couple of things while you're there. Hit the red sign up button. That'll put you on our Saturday email list. And that every Saturday, we do a curated list of these uh, signal from the noise things that we're tracking, like my reading is curated. So these articles that identify these trends and, you know, new signals that we're identifying will come across on that e-blast. Go to our investor education section. we got tons of stuff. I mean, you know, I love what you guys are doing and we have some, some similar stuff, you know, more like street level, uh, but, you know, underwriting apartments, you know, how to look at, you know, investing in development projects as an investor. So things that are related to how investors would look at, you know, investing in new construction projects. Awesome. And a special thank you to First Boston Capital, our sponsor for the pod. Grossman Companies, Dave Grossman, if you need bridge loan, access to capital, you have a great project, need the money, reach out to Dave and his team at First Boston Capital. Awesome. And thank you for uh, listening, reviewing, rating, subscribing, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.